So this morning, you are sitting in the chairs of, and you have stepped into what God has been doing for over 2,000 years. You're a part of the era of the church. The beginnings of this we find recorded here in the book of Acts. So the book of Acts is a history. It is a retelling of historical data, things that have happened in the past. But it's not just a history. It's a history with a bias toward the gospel. Luke is a physician, so we call him Dr. Luke. And he's writing the book of Acts with a bent toward trying to help a man by the name of Theophilus. He's trying to help him have faith. So everything we read in the book of Acts should be prefaced with this question. How does this history, how does this retelling of this history help me to better understand the good news of the gospel? How does this history help us to understand the gospel better? So with that in mind, let's read verses 1 through 13. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us. We know that it is a mercy, it is a grace that we have anything from you. And yet, in your word, we have the good news of salvation for our souls, that we are saved once and we are being saved by it. God, would you let that good news be refreshed in our minds this morning? Would you show us Jesus yet again in ways that make us fall more in love with him. If there is any sin among us, God, I pray that you would help us to be repenting as we sit here. And I pray that you would remove every distraction from the room. Let our hearts be still before you so that as you speak, we may hear so that as we read your word, you may speak directly to our hearts. Would you let it come through our minds to do, directly to our hearts, that it may change us. And God, for any of this to happen, it's going to have to be your work. It is going to have to be by your power, by your spirit, and so we ask that you would do it. In that, if there is anything that I say, if there is anything that any of us think that is 
contrary to your word that is wrong, God, I pray that you would either let us not think it, or if we think it, or if I say it, I pray that you would help us to all forget it. God, let us only see what you have for us in your word. We come before you humbled because we have nowhere else to go. You have the words of life. So would you give them? And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. How does this history help us to better understand the gospel? In these 13 verses, it does so in two ways. Acts 2, 1 through 13, helps us to understand that one, the gospel is to be proclaimed with power. And two, that the gospel is for the nations. One, the gospel is to be proclaimed with power. And two, the gospel is for the nations. So let's take a look at the first one. Look at verse one. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. The day of Pentecost was um, 50 days after Passover, maybe 51, um, which oddly enough ends up being at the beginning of June, which is where we find ourselves now. Uh, But Pentecost was at the end of the wheat harvest when um, Jewish people from all over, they would come to Jerusalem to offer their first fruits to the temple. It was basically just a huge party. People were lined up in the streets. People were coming together. Oh, I saw you last year. Hey, it's good to see you. And God uses this party as a springboard for the gospel to be proclaimed and for the church era to begin. It begins here. They're all together in the upper room praying, verse 2. And suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house they were sitting, where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. So, A violent wind, this literally happened. A violent wind roared through the house like a tornado of fire and it divided into separate flame-like tongues that individually danced on the heads of 120 people that are in the room. And God has always shown himself this way. Through fire, the burning bush, the column of fire, the column of smoke, the wind. And then through John the Baptist, God even promised himself that he was going to come with a baptism of fire. And now... It's here. It is here. He is here. God is here. The wind and fire of the presence of God is not something that needs to be mitigated on a mountain or in a temple somewhere in the Middle East where only one guy can actually make it in. But God is here. And he steps into personal relationship with individual believers through the Holy Spirit. Why? Why is God doing this? It's part of his redemptive plan to get his people back. Ever since the fall, uh, God has been on a mission to redeem and purchase back his people from their sins by grace through faith. However, that's, that's been his plan all along. That's been God's redemptive story all along. However, God's mission, the way that mission works out, looks a little different than it did in the Old Testament. The message is the same, but the means by which the message is proclaimed is different. The message of salvation began in the garden when God says, well, uh, his offspring is going to crush the serpent's head. It all began right there, but we see it just a little more clearly in Genesis 12. 
God speaking to Abraham, Abram at the time, says, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The message of salvation is in a Messiah Messiah Savior that is to come one day. And he will bless all the families of the earth. From this point on in history, the message of salvation was brought to others by this one man and his family and then eventually the nation that ended up caravanning through the Middle East. But the Holy Spirit did not indwell every believer. It looked a little different. Every believer did not have the power of the Holy Spirit, and so every believer was not part of the mission in the way that the new church, the New Testament, <clears throat> the 2,000-year-old church that we are a part of, it's different. Under the new covenant in Jesus' blood, the Holy Spirit has come with power to enable all the church, all who believe, all of God's people, to take the light of the gospel of God's glory of Christ to every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. The Messiah has come. He has accomplished redemption on the cross. He has risen and ascended to the right hand of God, and the interval before he returns in glory will be marked by an incomparable outpouring of the Holy Spirit on men and women. Old and young, slave and free, near and far, it doesn't matter. And the people of God in this period, they're going to be born of the Spirit, reborn, baptized in the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, empowered with the Spirit to bear witness to this gospel. We live in these days. We live in the days that Isaiah and Ezekiel and Joel and all of the prophets prophesied about and they longed for. There are no more decisive turning points in history that must happen before Jesus will establish his kingdom. This is it. The very next one, he's coming. These are the days of Pentecost. The days of the fullness of spirit. The days of worldwide mission. And it happens all in a moment. Look at verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So we see here the very first occurrence of proper speaking in tongues. However, there are also wrong ways to speak in tongues. Paul spends a good amount of time going over uh, the legit use of these gifts in his letter to the Corinthian church because there are wrong ways to do it. Speaking in tongues is not like the modern day movement uh, that we know of, that we might hear of, of speaking in tongues where uh, there's gibberish being spoken and there is no language unto no interpretation and that proclaims no gospel. So uh, here are just four marks for legit speaking in tongues and we have them, I'll fill it out a little bit, but here are the four marks of legit speaking in tongues. One, they should proclaim the gospel. All of the gifts that God has given to his children have one overarching purpose of proclaiming the gospel, of helping the gospel message to go forward and edifying the church in that gospel. Otherwise, what's the point? What's the point if we speak in any tongues, even our own? Tongues, uh, the second one, tongues are for the proclamation of the gospel in human languages. 
It would be as though a man from China were sitting in the seats today, did not speak English, and I, in perfect Mandarin, I do not know Mandarin, in perfect Mandarin, were able to explain to him the gospel of Jesus Christ. It would be in his language. He would understand it in his own language. This is the purpose of speaking in tongues as we see it here in Acts 2. It's for the sake of the gospel, and it's in his language. These tongues are spoken in languages that others understand. We know this to be true because of verse 5. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, rightfully so, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Third, speaking in tongues must always be interpreted. God gave his church two gifts surrounding the gift of tongues, tongue speaking and tongue interpreting. The goal was that all could understand and benefit from the truth that was being spoken. So according to the Bible, the gift of tongues was meant to communicate God's message of the gospel directly to another person in his or her uh, native language. And so, if those present could not understand the language being spoken, those tongues were useless. And that's what made the tongues interpreter necessary. So you have both. Speaking in tongues must always be interpreted. The fourth thing, speaking in tongues must be done in order. In short, it must not distract from the gospel. 1 Corinthians 14, we see uh, Paul handling this issue because the Corinthian church was not handling it well. They were not speaking in tongues in proper ways. So he says <clears throat> in 1 Corinthians 14 that tongues aren't a sign for believers, but for unbelievers. And that only one or two or three should speak in tongues at a time, and those are with interpretation. And that it's better to speak five words to instruct someone than 10,000 in a tongue. The modern day tongues, tongues movement places this gift on a high pedestal. But it shouldn't be so. Speaking in tongues does not save a person, nor is a person saved if they can do it, nor does it offer proof that they are saved because it can be done wrong. It's merely a gift that enables some people to proclaim the gospel. So is this gift still around today? Sure, if they are legit. How do we know if they are legit? If they proclaim the gospel in another language, are interpreted that all may understand and benefit from it, and are done in an orderly manner so as to not distract from the gospel. <clears throat> Tongues can absolutely be done wrong, but they can also absolutely be done right. And lives can be saved and transformed by the good news of the gospel being proclaimed in their language. The gift of tongues is even a spiritual gift that Paul says we are to desire. But you may not ever be in a position to use it. And so we place it in its proper place as a tool to proclaim the gospel, nothing more, nothing less. Tongues are not the point of the passage, but they help us to see the point. Dr. Luke is leading us on a journey. He's writing this letter to Theophilus for the purpose of retelling history with the purpose of building up his faith. So it's a history with a bias toward the gospel. And so we are to view everything in this book in light of the gospel. 
So what do we learn about the gospel here in these verses? That the gospel is to be proclaimed with power from the Holy Spirit. Where we are in this upper room, the apostles are hiding. They're hiding for their lives because the man that they followed for three, maybe two years, he was just crucified. They might be too. He was crucified in the same city where they are. And so this fear where they are is where they will remain without the power of the Spirit. And this is totally appropriate. No one will go as a witness to the gospel in that city. Like nobody's gonna step out that door as a martyr for the kingdom unless they have a divine from the Holy Spirit power. It makes no earthly sense to step outside of that room. Without power from the heavens above, no one's going anywhere. But we know they do. Proclaiming the gospel for them means that they will have to step into hard places, like where the gospel or where the Messiah was crucified. Proclaiming the gospel will mean that we too step into hard places that make no earthly sense to the rest of the world. To walk across the street or driveway in order to begin a conversation about how Jesus really is the only way is really exclusive in a world, in a culture of inclusivism. It's upside down to speak of bearing a cross as opposed to living our best lives now. It's very anti our culture to proclaim the gospel of laying down our lives as Jesus laid down his life as opposed to, well, I still want to live the rest of my life the way I want to live the rest of my life. Our culture, just here in Forniterral Talti, is one of, one of comfort. And I'm going to live my, my life the way I choose to live my life. People may not say it, we may not say it, but it's written with our lives. It's just our culture. For us to step into that kingdom, to proclaim another kingdom with another king, that's gonna take nothing less than the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the point. For those of us who believe, at the moment of belief, we were sealed with that power. We have no need of asking the Holy Spirit to come and give us power. He's within us. So the power to proclaim is within us. The question is, are you using it? It is to be proclaimed with power because we have no power. However, this is not the only truth about the gospel that we learn here. We also learn that the gospel is for the nations. Look at verse five. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, all of these men from every nation, from every nation, uh, all they, they came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Like essentially what they're asking is, how are these guys speaking our language? Like they don't have any formal training in any of our languages. That guy fishes for a living. 
Like, how is he speaking my language? But in this, we see the way that God advances his kingdom. They weren't the most amazingly skilled or educated. And yet God used them. So there's hope for all of us who feel that we aren't worthy. There's no excuse. In fact, Christianity at its core is really only for those who admit they have no strength and no uh, purpose in life, no hope, nothing but weakness. On my own, I have no hope, no purpose in life that will not lead me unto eternal death. But in Christ, though I am but small with many weaknesses, it's not about me. Who is it about? The nations. Those who do not know. Who we are despite our past of sin, despite who we are, makes no difference to our purpose. And it makes no difference to the power that God gives. Since the gospel is for the nations, it means that we can take a huge load off of our shoulders and thinking that the world revolves around us. Because it doesn't. The gospel is not about us. The church is not about us. Our purpose is not about finding our best comfort or the best financial plan or anything about us at all, but about proclaiming this gospel with power to those who need to hear it, that God may be glorified by even more human beings, by even more weaklings like us in this kingdom, proclaiming the new king. Verse 8. How is it that we hear, each of us, in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, everyone, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said they're filled with new wine. The message is the same. There is unity there, but the languages differ. It's a beautiful picture of what heaven will one day be like. People from every tongue, tribe, nation, language, all together. And so it's mind-blowing to see this. Like we aren't sitting there in that room. We aren't sitting there in Jerusalem where we're just having this party and then these Galileans, the guy that, he's a fisherman, he's speaking our language. It's not happening to us. But if we were to see it, it would blow our minds. And so some of them, trying to make sense of it all, they can't, but they're trying to make sense of it all, so they just equate this sign with, oh, they're just drunk on the new wine. But what are we supposed to see here in this list of places? The gospel is for the nations. Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10 say this. Worthy are you, speaking of Jesus, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. The purpose of the church is to spread the gospel to every people, tribe, tongue, nation, language. How? 
by the power of the Holy Spirit, we proclaim. We pray. We go. We send. We pray for those who do not know Jesus, like we just did. Whether it's a neighbor or an unreached people group, we go across the street or across the globe. Either way, our call is to go. And we send, we support with our prayer and our finances those who are able to go into places that we're not. We desire, just so you guys know, we desire for mission to be about this mission because we see it's just God's mission throughout his whole redemptive history and story. And so we financially support a few different pastors um, one in Oak Cliff, we support Stillwaters here in Kaufman, um, one in California, and then we have um, a missions organization that we're helping to support. But outside of those things, because those are big and shiny, and then we can put those on the wall and like, look, this is what we're doing. Outside of those things, the rest of our call as a church, as a body of believers, is up to you. You are the person that God has placed in the lives of others. You are the only one who can use your voice and your kindness and your proclaiming with power. So what ways are you doing this? And what reasons do you give for why you aren't? We can be honest. It's against everything we are naturally predisposed to think about. We're just like the Jews in Acts 1. God is, Jesus says, uh, I'm gonna give you the Holy Spirit. He will come with power. And then the Jews sitting there, the apostles, they're like, so is this when Jerusalem's gonna be restored? Like they're super small-minded. They're super uh, focused on this. But so Jesus had to broaden their minds and say, it's for Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is for everyone. This is for the nations. The church, the gospel, the mission of God, the purpose for our lives is not us. It's everyone but us. Nowhere in scripture do we see that the church is supposed to be a place to fit in or a place to have all of our needs met or a place where we sit around and talk about how much we do not like this part of church. The church is about building others up. Anytime you see a responsibility, a call for a body of believers in the Bible, it is always others, others, others. Build each other up, encourage one another. Do not neglect to meet together with one another so that you can encourage one another. It's outward focused. The church is about building others up and taking in a deep breath of relief from the pressures of the enemy and the flesh and fighting the fight of sin every day. We come in here and we take a deep breath so that we can walk out of this room every Sunday on mission for the kingdom of God, to live a small glimpse of our eternal purpose, to glorify our great God and King and to tell others the good news of the gospel that this King is victorious over sin and death. The mission of God is not about us, it is about the nations. It's not about us, but it is up to us. Will you proclaim?
and how will you? The day of Pentecost, as we read it here, over everything, stands as a mighty demonstration of God's pursuit of worship of his glorious name. For people from every nation, from every tongue, every tribe, we as followers of this great king in heaven, we get to offer it. We get to offer salvation to everyone. Ones that we love, ones that we hate. Ones we care for, ones that annoy us, ones that are kind, and ones that absolutely do not deserve any bit of God's mercy or grace. People like us. The ground is level at the foot of the cross, so there are no better or worse than. We are all redeemed. And so our purpose is to proclaim with power this gospel. You can join too. The question does remain, though. Since we are to proclaim this gospel to the nations with power, what are we to proclaim? What did these men and women proclaim? Look back to verse 9. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, everyone. We hear them, the apostles, telling in our own tongues what? The mighty works of God. What are these mighty works of God? If you will, turn to Psalm 145. What are the mighty works of God? I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. What are these? On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. What are these? They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. What is this greatness? They shall pour forth your fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. What is it? The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power. Do you see the proclamation? Do you see proclaiming with power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom? Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. And every single believer in history knows that this is only true 
knows that this can only be true in light of the Messiah who gave his life for us. In the Old Testament, when David wrote this, his mind was a little foggy. He didn't have the Messiah yet. He knew what he was writing about, just not fully. Yet for us, we look back and we see exactly why we have this slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, merciful and gracious Father in heaven. It's because of Jesus. We have nothing like that. We have, that is not our reality. Unless one sacrificed their life on our behalf. And yet he did. The only way that this becomes true of us, that a, we have a God who is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, is by the grace of God to send his son to die on the cross in the place of sinners. The place of you and me. And we are made righteous by faith, by trust, by believing in the finished work of Christ on the cross. It says, that was enough to satisfy the wrath of God on my behalf. The life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. The fact that we deserve nothing but eternal death in hell, but on the basis of a perfect sacrifice are given eternal life as a gift. All because of everything that Jesus has accomplished. These are the mighty works of God. And they are all encompassed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when they're sitting here and they're saying, they're, they're declaring the mighty works of God, what they're telling them is that the Messiah has come. Everything that he promised, everything that God has promised for 4,000 years up to this point, you guys, it's happening. They're declaring the good news of the gospel. They're proclaiming with power from the Holy Spirit to every nation. It didn't matter who was in that room. You're from China, you know Mandarin? We're gonna start speaking that together. I'm gonna tell you about the gospel. That's the power of the Holy Spirit there. So they all point to the same truth for us. These mighty works of God. That forgiveness of sins and repentance was proclaimed to us. And we trusted. And now that proclamation that we heard becomes our purpose. But the truth remains that we will only proclaim the gospel to the, degree, to the degree by which it blows us away. To the degree by which we stand before it and so know that we do not deserve it, yet we have it as a free gift in Jesus Christ. Do you have too, too low a view of sin that grace doesn't matter? Do you have too low a view of grace that sin still leaves you in despair? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Let the truth of this be what you think about all the time. Try to figure out another way to heaven and see how beautiful this grace is. Look deep into the cavern of your sinful heart and yet see it covered by mercy. Behold the gospel. And one day, 
by the good news of the gospel, we will stand in heaven in the presence of God, our Savior. And we will be standing there with those who proclaim to us and those who we proclaim to. And we'll all be praising. One thing that is a beautiful picture of that day to come is when we stand and sing together. It's a picture of what we're going to be doing forever. Until that day, we proclaim, not with our power, but from the power that the Holy Spirit provides, we proclaim the gospel to all nations, to all people types, to all people groups, to all personalities. We behold the mighty works of God that he became like man to save us, and we rest there so that we may work from it. So, in order to properly rest this morning in the gospel, to, in order to properly find and, and, if you will, channel into our only power, because it is not found in and of ourselves, we're gonna partake of the Lord's Supper together. And as we do, if you are a believer, you're welcome to the table because you get to partake as part of the adopted family of God. However, if you are in unrepentant sin, or if you are not yet a believer, I ask that you would remain in your seat during this time. But do work with your Father. Let this time be for all of us, a time where we examine our own hearts and lives. Do we believe? Do we trust in Christ, in the finished work of Christ on the cross for our salvation? If you're in unrepentant sin, you already know that you are not living according to your call because of the powerlessness that you are living in. Turn back to your Father in this time and live in your purpose again this morning. Take a deep breath of God's mercy that is new for you this morning and turn from your sins again today. So that those you are called to may not see your heavy and dark eyes of sin, but may behold your gracious Father who has forgiven your sin. Believe again in the gospel. If you're an unbeliever, this good news of the forgiveness of sins by the sacrifice of Jesus, it can be yours. It can be good news for your sins too. If you would forsake your sins and trust in Jesus for your only way to eternal life, there is no other way, but there is a way. And it comes through hearing this gospel and believing in it for the sake of your life. Believe in the good news of the gospel today. For all of us, here is our prayer. Father, we admit and confess that we need this body and blood to cover our sins of failing to proclaim this gospel. Would you, by your Holy Spirit, 
give us power to proclaim it to the world. Would you allow us to live in the hope of this gospel that we may proclaim it well? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So for all of us, take your time. The only hope that we have rests in the gospel. But it is a reality. How do we know? How do we know that the gospel is true? Because on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. Because as we sit on our own, there is nothing that we can do, no good deeds that we can accumulate that will overcome the weight and the wages of sin. And yet in that utter hopelessness, we have a light And we have a hope that is alive and living today and now. No other God looked on us and had mercy and grace. No other thing that we try to worship ever offers us anything that it promises. But you are a good father. You have always done what you have promised. And look at the mighty works that you have done. That we are utterly hopeless in and of ourselves and we have no deserving quality about us that anyone would look at us and see that we are worthy. Yet you sent your son to take our place on the cross that we deserved to give us grace that we did not deserve. God, would you let us live deep in this hope? Help us now, Father, to believe that this is true, that our sins have been paid for by your body that was broken for us and your blood that was shed on our behalf. God, help us to stand in this gospel so that we may proclaim properly. So that whether it's a gift or a tongue or whatever we say, whatever we do will be unto your glory and will be for the sake of those who do not know this gospel yet.
God, would you help us to live in this gospel? And would you let us proclaim with power this gospel? We thank you that we have a living hope in Jesus. And it is in Jesus' beautiful name that we pray.